Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Outward, Slate's podcast about queer culture, politics, and the occasionally spicy, often catty, but always cute LGBT conversation. Uh, and just so we're all clear, I recently learned that it actually stands for Liberty, Guns, Beer, and Trump. I don't know if you guys... <laughs> yes. <laughs> QAnon. And QAnon, that's right. The Q is QAnon. Uh, yeah, I, di- I didn't know that, but um, I'm glad to have learned something new. I'm Brian Lauder, and I edit Outward, among other things, at Slate. And I am Jules Gil-Peterson. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. All right, so we've got a lot to cover on the show today. Um, and honestly, it's like too damn hot outside for like lengthy thematic intros. So I'm just going to get right into it. So first up, we'll scratch our heads collectively at what's been happening in the U.S. Congress with same-sex marriage. Uh, in case you haven't heard about it, there's a bill called the Respect for Marriage Act that is currently awaiting a Senate vote, and it's already passed the House, that would protect marriage equality sort of on a federal level and require states to recognize marriages performed in other states. This is sort of how it would work. And it would also uh, do this Uh, even if the Supreme Court overturned the 2015 Obergefell decision, which legalized uh, gay marriage across the country. And as we know, uh, uh, with what just happened with Roe v. Wade, that seems entirely possible. The weird thing is about this bill is that there may actually be enough Republican support for it to pass. So we're going to try to figure out how that happened and how it fits into the right's otherwise extremely hostile stance towards queer and trans people of late. Then, in something of a follow-up to our segment last month on the monkeypox outbreak, we're going to be joined by journalist and professor Stephen Thrasher to discuss his excellent and and just super timely new book, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. All of that will be buttressed by our usual prides and provocations and updates to the gay agenda. But first, we get to hear from you in this month's edition of Thoughts and Queries, I'm very excited this month. We have a fascinating advice question from a listener that I think we will all have a lot to say about. So I'm just going to read, I'll read the question uh, and then we can dive in. A friend of mine recently threw a party during Pride Month, which I couldn't go to. He later told me his party spontaneously turned into an orgy. For clarity, we're all gay men. I thought it was a great story when he told me, but having since attended another non-orgy party of his, I felt a little uneasy. (laughs) 
I am an average gay guy who likes sex with strangers perfectly well, but I don't want to have sex with this friend, and I don't want this friend to see me having sex. <laughs> and honestly, the dynamics of the orgy he described sounded awful. I'm curious. <laughs> I'd love to know more about that. What does a guy like me do about this? Should I just stop going to his parties? If I do find myself in this situation, what is the etiquette if I'm not into it? Or is it possible I'm just afraid of taking the plunge? I don't think Emily Post has an entry about the etiquette <laughs> in this case. Uh, but let's see if we can help. What, what do y'all think uh, about this? Girl, I mean, <laughs> you know, as as a not average gay guy, as a very exceptional <laughs> gay guy, I love this, actually. I think this is a real, I don't know how old this person is, but if they're a millennial or younger, like, ugh, yeah, that problem of being in a situation and not wanting to disappoint people and worrying about doing the wrong thing. So real. There's no reason that wouldn't extend to parties that at any time could become orgies. At you know, the drop would of that a hat. The, at the drop of a, at the drop of a pant. <laughs> would that the world were like that more generally? I mean, you know what? It's 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 very thoughtful of you. Um, you don't have to stop going to his parties. You can absolutely non-dramatically bow out um, mm-hmm. if things start getting super sexy um and just say like yeah that's cool i'm not like really here to fuck um <laughs> see you later i mean yeah you know if you're afraid of taking the plunge honey i don't know i can't answer that for you mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. might be fun to find out but <laughs> yeah there has been a sense in some of the queer circles i've been a part of that having sex with our friends is is just something that queers mm. do I've never felt that way, mm, and I've felt mm. a little bit like trying to examine in myself, does that make me a bad queer? Is there something that I'm missing here? Am I afraid of taking the plunge? Is right. there something? Do I have like a weird hang-up? But no, I actually think it's okay to not want to have sex with specific people, and especially a friend, where like a relationship could very well become more complicated or take a turn that you're not comfortable with if you introduce sex into a platonic relationship. I also want to say that I think it's important if you do go to a party and leave when things become orgified to not make an excuse that's not true, Mm, to not say like, oh, Oh well, I just ate too much and I feel weird and so I have to go or something. But actually be honest about like, oh, no, this like isn't my vibe and um, you guys have fun and I'm just going to go home because otherwise then your friend will continually ask you if you want to come to his orgies. Um, or there's at least the risk of that happening. Yeah. What do you think, Brian? Oh, I think that's all great advice. Um, you know, I'm, ho- I'm hoping that the friend in this case is not being kind of coercive about this, because what you said, Christina, really resonated. This there, there can be in certain circles this notion that, yeah, like free love for <laughs> free, free love for everybody, which I think is is not everyone's speed. And that's fine. Hopefully the friend is not pushing our listener to to feel like they have to participate, but it's just like, you know, kind yeah. of the general social pressure. I mean, I, yeah, I think this is a totally reasonable boundary. And I think, honestly, when you feel the vibe shift happen, and I think it is pretty detectable when something goes from like a house party to like, oh, it's, like, yeah. it's, it's moving <laughs> that way. Just leave, you know, just just politely uh, gather your things, tell, you know, maybe wish everyone a good time and head out. I don't even know if you necessarily have to explain yourself. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, again, True. there's not a lot of pressure to do that. But but, you know, yeah, just just kind of bow out. And, and I bet actually that this person won't be the only one who feels this way. And so maybe by doing that, you would give, you know, not not that you want to cause a mass exodus, but like. <laughs> 
maybe anyone who's not comfortable with what's going on here follow me (laughs) yeah i wouldn't do it that way but even (laughs) just like being one person kind of picking up their coat and going might might kind of signal to others that that's that that's okay to you if they if they feel that way and then because i mean at the end of the day you don't want anyone at the orgy who doesn't want to be there right that's not going to be fun yeah no one wants that so no i mean i think life and including parties is is just like Jennifer Coolidge's character said in Best in Show, <laughs> we could have sex, we could not have sex for hours. So you know, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Words to live by. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much to that listener. What a wonderful, um, you know, late, not quite still in Pride Month, but still summer is like Pride season. Uh, question for us to consider. Uh, anyone else has a question like this for us or feedback or you know updates on your life that you want us to know, anything like that, we would love to hear it uh, for the thoughts and queries segment. Just uh, send us an email, ideally a voice memo. We'd love to hear your voices uh, on the show, but uh, an email is fine too. And that is at outwardpodcast at slate.com. All right, loves, it's time for our monthly prides and provocations. Christina, how are you feeling this month? I'm feeling really proud. I don't know if y'all have seen this viral video or series of viral TikToks, I think, of Taylor Blake, an emu farmer in South Florida, Mm -hmm. um, scolding her emu Emmanuel for um, being too inquisitive (laughs) during her filming of the TikToks. Words can't even describe how viral this video went. Like, people I know who are barely even online were sending me this TikTok. I want to play a little clip of it. It's just to give you a little bit of context. This super cute queer has a collection of just incredible, uh, an enviable collection of overalls. Um, And we'll be standing in her farm. trying to talk about some of the animals around and then Emmanuel the emu pops his head into the frame and just begins sort of like pecking inquisitively at the camera. Here's a little clip. This is a Emmanuel do not do it. Emmanuel don't do it. Emmanuel don't do it. I'm trying to educate people right now, okay? So when I saw this video I mean, within an instant, I was like, that person's family, you know? Mm, mm, And mm. it's one of my favorite things in internet life when Mm. someone goes viral for a not explicitly queer reason and they're queer. It just reminds me that we're everywhere, including on Knuckle Bump Farm in South Florida. This uh, woman's name is Taylor Blake. She grew up near her grandparents' farm in Florida and moved there with her girlfriend to help her grandparents care for their animals. They specialize in miniature cows. Oh my god! A species what? I didn't know existed. What? Oh my god! Knuckle Bump Farm is the name, which I know it's her grandparents' farm, but that sounds like a lesbian <laughs> sex move. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I did that in college. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So what I love about this, besides the fact that um, she's extremely uh, cute and hilarious, is that she's very stern with Emmanuel, yet you know that she still loves him, but she wants better from him. Mm -hmm. And even when he chooses violence and she has to reprimand him, he remains in her brood. I just highly recommend that y'all look up Knucklebump Farms, follow Taylor Blake. 
she told the Washington Post that Emmanuel has an obsession with the camera and an obsession with me. No mm. matter where I am, he always has to be right next to me. And I just want to say, uh, likewise. Thank <laughs> yeah. you, Taylor Blake. <laughs> right? So proud. Just proud to be in the same general LGBTQ community with Taylor Blake, the emu farmer, and miniature cattle farmer. And Emmanuel. And Emmanuel. Yeah. Right. So I don't know anything about Emmanuel's identity. <laughs> no. But... He's exhibiting some warning signs of queerness. Yeah, inquisi- inquisitiveness and camera, camera he hogging. He loves the camera. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, how are you feeling this month, Jules? Wow. I mean, I'm feeling really good after learning about I don't know how I hadn't seen that video. Um, but, you know, I'm feeling good. I, you know, I, I don't think we've had a chance to to go there and to address this. So so let me mm. just say, uh, let me just say one word. And the word is renaissance, mm-hmm. okay? Rena fucking sauce. We're talking Beyonce's new album. Mm. I know it technically came out in July, but it was after our last episode dropped. And so, you know, the category is, of course, pride. It's, it's a banger. I mean, you know, what, what, what could I possibly have to say about this album that has not already been said? But I think, you know, and this is not even my pride to wear per se, but it's a pride that I guess, you know, I've been happy to participate in. And that's, you know, about the way that this album is so influenced by by black house music mm-hmm. and by by femme queens um, and how many, you know, black trans women are featured on the album. There's something so satisfying about that. It's complicated, you know. I want to, I want to acknowledge the various um, criticisms of the album in different ways, but I just really think, like, you know, there's something so, uh, something just so melodious. I mean, like for me, I think especially thinking about, you know, what it what it means for Big Frida to be, you know, mm-hmm. elevated mm-hmm. in this way, not that she needs any elevation, but the role, the historical role, for example, you know, of New Orleans or the Mississippi Delta and the kind of, you know, creolized, you know, Black expressive cultures of music, dance, and queerness that run back centuries, this historian is here to tell you, mm-hmm. right? And to just, like, to hear that and to feel that, right? Um, and that's, you know, in some ways part of what I appreciate about what Beyonce is, like, very capable of doing. Like, she channels these things and she puts together a production team that's, like, here's unlimited money. What could we do? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just, it's lovely. Can an album, you know, give everybody their roses who should have been, you know, getting their roses for a long time? No, of course not. But is my boyfriend tired of me blasting (laughs) the album in different combinations constantly every single fucking day, even if we're taking a three minute drive to the store? Like, yes, he is. And he's been very patient. Um, And it's not going to stop. So he's provoked actually this month. I'm cl- I think he's probably provoked, but he's too sweet to say so. But but you know, all I have to say is feeling a lot of pride, feeling a lot of pleasure and joy, and yeah. just you know, grateful to have something to to groove along to right now. Um, Brian, how are you feeling? Well, I hate to bring down all of that that joy and pride uh, with mine because it is a provocation. But I think we have to we have to mention it. Unfortunately, um, I am provoked this month uh, by the Log Cabin Republicans and their... Ooh, why ever would you be... Well, I'm I know, sorry, I, who? <laughs> I know it's shocking, uh, but it's honestly not... Like, normally that would just be by their sort of mere existence, right? But <laughs> I, I, think as, I think as we're going to hear in, in your uh, gay agenda item, Christina, 
their existence is kind of too tragic at the moment to have like mm. make me feel badly general generally speaking but they did a thing this past week that that I think deserves uh, a, a, a mention and a provocation for sure I don't know if everybody saw this but after the FBI search of Donald Trump's Florida compound uh, Mar-a-Lago the uh, national Twitter account of, of the Law Cabin Republicans had this to say just as the patrons of Stonewall were not oh in- <laughs> were not intimidated by police, we will not be intimidated by the weaponization of the FBI and DOJ against President Trump or his home, Mar-a-Lago, dot, 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 where, as we announced hours ago, we will be holding our annual gala later this year. <sighs> LOL. Okay, so... Donald Trump isn't gay. Uh, oh, the my God. The people at Stonewall were we, queers. We, like... Like we don't really have to unpack this, and I I, I kind of <laughs> hope that it was a troll almost. Although I don't I don't I'm think it sure was. I'm sure it was. Like it, it's hard. To, yeah, right? that would make me feel better, honestly, because then it would not like if it's sincere, it's almost too much to handle. But like, right? Obviously, comparing <laughs> like extremely marginalized people at the who are at the Stonewall Inn who were subject to regular police violence and agenda of homophobic justification, like all of that, comparing them to a powerful former president who is being investigated for actually breaking the law, like many of them probably, is absurd. And then also just paying money to that guy to host your gala as tacky resort. Just so you can feel a little closer and like to him and the party that hates ugh. you. Like, ugh, pathetic. But, like, honestly, it's, like, the weaponization, since they, they brought up that mm-hmm. word, of, of queer history that kind of gets me the most. Like, the collaborationist ethos of the Law Cabin Repo- Republicans is just so at odds with the spirit of queer liberation that Stonewall has at least come to represent, that seeing them invoke it, it's like, it would be surreal if it weren't just so perverse. So, I I, I don't know, my, my feeling is just, like, keep... Keep our Stonewall uh, ancestors' names off your lips and like put them back on Trump's ass or whatever. I yeah. don't know. Leave us alone. Say that. <laughs> yes. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. All right, you two. It may not feel like it, 
But we could be on the verge of a major milestone in our legal rights. Last month, the House passed a bill that would require states to recognize same-sex and interracial marriages, really pushing the boundaries here, Yeah. Uh, essentially enshrining equal marriage into law. So you might say, uh, why? You know, ever heard of a little thing called our Obergefell v. Hodges? And I would say to you, uh, let me introduce you to my friend, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, okay? Oh, hi. So we talked about this with Mark Joseph Stern in Pride Month. It used to seem to me, and perhaps to you too, that a Supreme Court decision was pretty solid and definitely more decisive than a law that can just be repealed all willy-nilly next time a new Congress comes through. Well, I don't feel that way anymore. <laughs> no. uh, and this Supreme Court has shown itself willing to do whatever it damn well pleases with abortion rights. So Democrats said, you know, gay marriage could be next. Let's put this up to a vote. They're trying to protect equal marriage with this bill, which would repeal the Defense of Marriage Act. And the bill... Funnily enough, is titled the Respect for Marriage Act. <laughs> so it's now forcing legislators to lay down their cards once and for all to answer that burning question, do you defend marriage or do you respect it? You can only choose one. <laughs> only choose one. Yeah. So the second reason why Democrats have put this to a vote which will go to the Senate next, is to force Republicans, some of whom represent districts that really support gay marriage, as do a majority of Americans, to go on the record with this position that could make them very unpopular. And I wanted to talk about it this week because I was pretty astounded to see how many Republicans in the House supported this bill. That's 47 of them voted mm. to protect equal marriage. Meanwhile, when Barack Obama ran for the Democratic nomination for president in 2008, he didn't even support gay marriage. This has all happened pretty quickly. 47 Republicans, just to put this in terms that some of you might understand, that's four full packs of Starbursts if, you have eat <laughs> <laughs> if you've eaten one of them. So that's a lot. three full packs and one nearly full pack of Starbursts. <laughs> that's a lot. It made me think about how rapidly the politics of gay marriage have changed for the better, mm. Even as we're seeing this resurgence of homophobia and these escalating assaults on trans people in right-wing politics. And at the same time, gay marriage on like a personal level, not a political level, has really reshaped our communities. Even just in the five years after Obergefell v. Hodges was decided, according to estimates from Gallup, the number of Americans in a same-sex marriage doubled from 750,000 to 1.5 million people. That's about one in 10 LGBTQs in the US are now in a gay marriage. Mm -hmm. So as we wait to see what the Senate has to say about all this, we're gonna take stock of what the politics of gay marriage are today. First, I just wanna ask you two, what do you make of the three and change packs <laughs> of Starburst Republicans who voted for marriage rights? Is that more or less than you would have expected? I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm totally sympathetic to a flip flop on gay marriage. Like I used to be in a gay marriage and now I'm a gay divorcee. So I have <laughs> flipped and flopped all over this issue myself. You know, it, it is it is interesting. It's a fair amount. Yeah. And it does show how much um, the sort of proverbial Overton window has shifted. And it's interesting because like, 
don't know. There's just so many people in the House. These numbers are always yeah. so big. And then you get to Too the many. Senate. And there's, yeah, well, you know, in the Senate, everything's out of 100. So it's like so much cleaner for people who yeah. can't think through numbers, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because the story in the Senate is all like, well, are there 10 Republicans, right? And it's like, the math is really funny because it's like, well, probably, but also maybe not really. And, and, and you know, so I, I, it's so weird that also we have to assign meaning to these really weird numbers because the other number that same week of that house vote that stood out to me was uh another democrat bill seeking to again one of these weird bills they keep writing that are like sort of ghost writing a supreme court decision but often not at all like Mm. meeting the same level due to chicanery um of how the u.s system works but there was one that was trying to sort of codify the right to contraception and that one Mm. tanked like tanked among republicans so republicans were like yeah, whatever, gay people getting married, but, you know, reproductive freedom, absolutely not. And I was just like, well, that says a lot. And then this sort of lingering question of the the interracial marriage of it mm. all that's built into this bill that no one wants to talk about, mm. where I'm always like, okay, well, that's also very American. So I feel very <laughs> confused in a United Statesian kind of way about this number. <laughs> Yeah, I feel I feel kind of yeah, like pretty ambivalent about it, I guess, um, because like the function of such a law would be good. I don't think anybody like disagrees with that, but it feels like it's being paid. Like the more I thought about it and reflected on because I was surprised, I should mm-hmm. say, like when I given given just like the like resurgence of like very public homophobia on the right, uh, I, I sort of would not necessarily expect them to get behind this. But but once I started thinking about that and, and looking at this number and, and hearing, you know, about the, the sort of discussions in the Senate, it just feels like it's like coming, it's being paid for by these really troubling logics, right? When you sort of read what people are saying about it, very much the like the success of the knowing someone or having a son or daughter yes. strategy. Ugh. Which was a very, very conscious tactic of our movement. I mean, I have to say it was all about Mm -hmm. uh, and and based on research to some degree about what was effective about knowing someone. Right. And especially knowing a family member. Um, And and this was like, I mean, Harvey Milk's whole thing, like coming out. And I think it was effective for a long time and, and still continues to be, as as you mentioned, like. Oh, like you have a gay kid and now you support it. Oh, is that the only thing that can, you know, very father of daughters moment. Exactly. And and so so that right, that has its limits. Right. And I don't think is like the ethical argument we really want to be making. Um, And, you know, I think we should be talking much more about freedom of expression. And there's like a whole whole legal um, reason for that. But like it, it is it doesn't feel great that <laughs> that sort of feels like one of the main drivers uh, here. And then the other thing that I was thinking about this is, um, and Maura Donegan uh, wrote about this in The Nation a little bit, you know, marriage is and always was and, and continues to be a conservative institution, right? Mm-hmm. And asking for access to that is always was always going to be more palatable to conservatives than other asks is the way that that uh, she writes about it, like abortion access or contraceptive or basic acceptance of trans existence. Right. Mm-hmm. All of these are also asks that that are but they are different in kind from the ask of like, can I go into this thing that you already think is valuable? Right. 
there's two sort of logics that seem to be driving this make me feel icky, even though it's like a good, like the outcome would be good, if that makes sense. Well, just to add on to that, like, you know, to complete the picture, maybe from the left, I think part of the iffiness here does have to do with trans people and trans rights, Mm -hmm. because so much of the fight for gay marriage as it took place, um, you know, was predicated on these national LGBT organizations, on the lawyers, on the couple, you know, the couples filing lawsuits, telling trans people over and over again not now, mm-hmm. but we'll do you next. You know how America works. You just line up all the marginalized groups and we just tick them off one by one and it's always successful, right? <laughs> um, and so it's like, you know, shout out to Chase Strangio, who I think is just absolutely right um, about this, you know, when all of this was going down and people were actually more after, you know, Dobbs came out, you know, and he was like, I don't want to hear right now from gay people who use marriage as a placeholder for everything else. Mm -hmm. Because the, the fact is the right to gay marriage has been useless over the past couple of years in protecting Uh, not just trans people, but also gay and lesbian people, especially kids, from an onslaught of severe uh, human rights abuses, Mm -hmm. especially at the state level. So we already know that marriage can't save us from what this is. Obviously, the legal scenario, like taking away millions of people's marriages, what a mess, okay? I don't understand why in the United States, when a law is found unconstitutional, it doesn't, like, it stays in yeah. case the court is, like, <laughs> takesy backsies later. So it can go back into, like, what a fucking stupid legal principle. Um, but, you know, so, like, I get it from a legal perspective, but just politically, you know, it, it makes me feel really iffy because, like, I just don't know why the left, the LGBT left, is so allergic to coalition. And that, to me, is such a capitulation that we can only do one issue at a time. It's like, well, you actually have to see um, abortion, trans rights, and marriage as interrelated, but they're not, it's not a flat or horizontal line. It's more of a web, and some things mm. have a different urgency and impact than others right and we need to connect that also (laughs) to the loss of voting rights and to the you know the uh, moral panic around critical race theory and all of these other you know technologies of racial governance so it's just like it's so frustrating because i know that legislative processes don't really play out that way but it's just like Like, you know, this whole thing just makes me feel weary. Like, I'm, like, 300 years old (laughs) because, like, a lot of other trans, you know, especially trans women were just like, "Uh uh-huh, well, (laughs) didn't listen to us about this 10 years ago, and now you, you don't even actually want our help. You actually, again, want to steamroll over us so you can, you know... You know, I feel like there's a lot of small C conservative strategy underlining all of this. So Mm. on... On one hand, there's the Democratic Party who feels like we have super slim majorities right now in Congress. Gay marriage is, you know, public opinion has changed on it almost faster than any other social issue besides um, marijuana legalization, which has actually (laughs) changed faster. Um, So this feels like that, plus the fact that Clarence Thomas said in Hmm. his concurrence Mm -hmm. in the Dobbs decision, like, we should reconsider gay marriage. They're like, okay, well, let's get this on the books right now just to make Republicans take a stand. And, you know, Republicans obviously have strategy of their own of like, well, if this thing's, you know, 
maybe not going to pass anyway, I can say that I'm for it and whatever. Whatever. They're all getting permission from their own respective parties. Nobody's acting mm-hmm. out of their own deeply held beliefs here. Yeah. There's also the strategy of the abortion rights movement, which, you know, I've been parts of conversations in the course of my reporting where abortion rights activists will say all the time, how do we mimic the success of the gay rights movement, which I've always felt to be a little bit suspect on two accounts. One is that have has the gay rights movement been super successful? If you if you think of it as like the LGBTQ rights movement, has that been really successful? Gay marriage? Yes. But gay marriage, even though Republicans were constantly saying, you know, this is going to sully the institution of marriage and ruin our marriages like everyone knew republicans included that it wasn't going to do anything to straight marriage whereas every time there's another you know ask for whether it's trans rights or equal protections or whatever their argument against it is portraying how they will suffer from it and so if you look at the way they've talked about trans access trans kids access to sports they're like well you know cis girls are going to start losing it's always about how other people will suffer from everyone having equal rights and so the reason why i find the abortion rights movement desire to mimic the gay rights movement success missing the point a little bit is that they've tried to use the coming out strategy. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. in recent years, you've seen like the shout your abortion campaign, the slogan about everybody loves somebody who's had an abortion. Whereas I don't think that's very effective when conservatives can argue like, yeah, you know, I don't really care if I know somebody who's had an abortion. Like, can't they just, you know, do their nine months and slip the baby into one of those fire station drop boxes? Like, literally, that's what Amy Coney Barrett believes should happen. And as you said, Brian, conservatives can sort of reasonably infer that they will not suffer from gay people getting married because it really doesn't have anything to do with them. There there will just be more people be married and, you know, stable nuclear families and whatever. But when people can use contraception and get abortions, that does upend and in fact did upend the social order. When women started being able to use contraception and get abortion, they entered the workforce more. They got divorces more. They were able to leave abusive relationships. They were able to earn more money. It, it is reasonable if you kind of take the logic of a conservative to look at that, even contraception, which way more people support than gay marriage. I looked at a Gallup poll from 2019 that listed a whole slew of, you know, putatively controversial issues. Birth control was the thing people supported most, even more than drinking alcohol. People thought <laughs> birth control Slay. was morally acceptable and a little bit less than drinking alcohol. But now... The Republicans are very uh, perceptively connecting contraception to abortion. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you said, Jules, you can't really separate that from the LGBTQ rights movement because they're linked through like gender and expression and freedom and sexuality, all these things that we think we should have the freedom to um, choose for ourselves. And yet, I I suspect that marriage is just going to be isolated as like, well, this is about people loving each other and doing whatever they do in the context of their own marriage in a way that doesn't affect everybody else. So, you know, we can accept that. But literally everything else that relates to how people like exercise power in the world or conduct their sexualities, we have a problem with all of that. Right. Like 
from the people who brought us love is love the most flaccid phrase i've ever (laughs) encountered for a like supposed political set of political demands like i can't with this anymore i mean that's the thing that i find that i guess like really raises my antenna it's something i've been interested in for years which is actually the gap between public perception of uh of civil rights and reality Mm. and you know the the public at least prior to this latest round of moral panics you know consistently far overestimated the civil rights that lgbtq people had and there's a real kind of pivotal moment you can see in polling as gay marriage becomes legal in a in a a number of states and then at the federal level where the public i think quite understandably presumes that gay people are protected from discrimination under the law everywhere which Mm -hmm. is still not true (laughs) like thanks to a very conservative supreme court decision written by gorsuch in fact they are covered under employment but that's it um there's no statutory coverage the equality act which used to be called enda still has never passed and so i guess you know from a movement perspective um right now when the stakes are very high part of my concern is that a bill like this the success of a bill like this or the failure of a bill like this either way becomes once again one of these weird synecdoches that mm. actually occludes the real danger that people are in because it looks like the real issue is whether or not we have gay marriage but very little hang a lot hangs on that for some people but very little of anything else hangs on that um and 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 it's just like again why interracial marriage is like a shadow hiding behind that in this bill is really weird, weird. to me yes and just this feeling that like I'm not, I'm just really not a pundit, but like, you know, this kind of chattering class thing in the Democratic Party between like, should we, let's just get good votes, you know, before the midterms, let's, let's make Republicans go on the record. And it's like, I just, that's so weird to be like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, yeah, really stick it to them with like serious, you know, life changing legal matters, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it just, Mm -hmm. it's like, so you don't even really care if any of these bills pass. Like to me, the contraception one is like an emergency level yes. thing. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, in the way that like, you know, people are not getting the abortion care that they need every single fucking day in this country. Children have been forcibly detransitioned in more than one state. Florida is finishing up the paperwork right now to yep. take all trans people of all ages off their medication by inventing its own made-up rules about standards of care like this shit is happening right now um and it's been happening for days upon days it gets worse every day and it just sometimes these things feel like they're designed to get us confused and off track but i mean i don't know there's just something about it that feels really bizarre and then also like obergefell is like you know, legal scholars definitely say it's like, it's a gold stand. It's a gold star legal decision, right? Like that legal decision has never had straight sex. Like it's really airtight in an environment where the English common law idea of precedent is still in effect. Like you cannot overturn a Burgerfell, except if you have a court (laughs) that remembers that five people decide you can. Exactly. Right. And so it's like, oh, okay, well, this actually is different than the legal situation, right? Running up to that decision where 
the federal court system was just this mess of like problems because marriage is like sort of up to the states to define, but the federal government has created all of these implications for marriage around taxes, mm-hmm. um, you know, legal rights to visitation and, and healthcare decisions and then the thousand, the thousand right? benefits. Yeah. 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 It's a perfect storm, but like some of that hits different now. And then also the public opinion has shifted so much, right? Like what a bizarre scenario that we're sort of living through where I actually think, again, I'm not sure we've had the time to catch up to just how weird that is. Right. And so I feel like people are also running playbooks that are really old that I just feel very unsettled by not because like I know the right way to meet this moment. I think we're all sort of, you know, figuring that out as we go, but there's just something really uncanny about all of this. I just want to note that another reason why this feels so weird is because on all of these issues, Republicans in power and conservatives on the Supreme Court are doing things that contravene public opinion. Right. And so it Mm -hmm. does feel like things have changed vibes wise because they have, (laughs) but because of the way our government is set up, that doesn't mean that, you know, the government has to reflect how people are feeling about things. But there's also a self-fulfilling cycle whereby if the Supreme Court makes a decision or if a law is passed, that affects public opinion, too. And so I even think this vote, mm. you know, when when the right to contraception does not pass, I feel like that will do something to turn people against contraception to make them think yeah. like, well, yeah, why should people have access to that? It's sort of like an abortion. Why can't women just, you know, stop having sex? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they don't want to have a baby, why can't people just save that for when they're ready to have a baby when, of course... That's not how people work, including the people making those arguments. But we're in a very strange moment where, and maybe it's it's not strange, maybe that's exactly how our government was set up to work, but whereby like the will of the people is so strong and yet not reflected by the actual laws that govern us. Yeah. Yeah, more and more. It's just hard for me to not feel like it. it is this this bill and the Republican support of it is a is a real canard. And like Jules said, designed to kind of confuse. I mean, because right, like if it passes and is made law, the only thing keeping the court later from like it being challenged in the court later, like changing precedent is is the court's goodwill. Right. Like and it is actually when you look at the 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 way that law would work, it's actually kind of complicated. It relies on full faith and credit. And you might your your marriage could be invalidated in a state uh, that chooses to do that, but then you have to go get married again somewhere else, and then they would have to respect it. It's kind of complex, and you can imagine now at this point, post post the overturning of Roe, something like that being challenged too, right? And so yes. I think it's an, I think it's foolish to not imagine that the Republicans don't have like a longer game in mind in supporting this where it's like yeah pass a little thing and then three years from now <laughs> we'll challenge it and full faith and credit will be uh as a as a legal legal um theory will be you know uh changed as well yeah so i i i, I i'm i'm more and more pessimistic the more we talk about it oh my god well let's stop talking about it no yeah. <laughs> um that's actually probably all the time we have for this topic anyway listeners we'd love to hear your take on all this you can email us anytime day or night at outwardpodcast at slate.com as the state of the world gets more and more you know it's hard to imagine <laughs> that one single book could truly speak to the moment that we're in but that's exactly what Stephen thrasher has achieved in the viral underclass 
the human toll when inequality and disease collide. Stephen is an incredible journalist and professor, and as we learn from reading, he's also a viral sleuth and a very compassionate friend and lover. The viral underclass weaves the stories of a number of viruses, especially HIV and COVID-19, to explore what they teach us about our collective capitalist self-delusions of bad faith, our fears about the vulnerability of our bodies and environments that are rooted in violent hierarchies of race, class, and nation, and the world we might enjoy if we embraced our viral interdependence. The theory of the viral underclass Stephen develops details how and why marginalized populations are harmed most of all by viral transmission, exposure, replication, illness, and even death, but all entirely due to human action, not the behavior of marginalized people, let alone the behavior of viruses. The book introduces us to the people that taught Stephen that lesson, from Michael Johnson, who is imprisoned in Missouri under a punitive and racist HIV transmission statute, to Lorena Borjas, the inimitable trans woman from Queens who changed the lives of so many of her fellow Latinas and immigrant girls before dying from COVID in the spring of 2020, to a string of incredible romances and lovers that at times seem to have had Stephen flying around the world. <laughs> Uh, it's it's truly a riveting book. Like I almost had to devour it in one sitting. I just did not want to put it down. And there were moments where I felt so angry with rage at the hubris of how we collectively let people suffer, die, or punish them for situations that we authored. But then there were also these moments that I was just in tears confronting the scale of loss that we've been told we have to accept whether it's for the good of the economy, the nation, or white supremacy. This is really a monumental book, um, and we're just so thrilled to have you here to talk to us about it. Stephen, welcome to Outward. Thank you so much for that extremely kind introduction. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, I mean, I I have to say, like, I just think anyone who reads this book is going to have chills. Mm-hmm. Um, and but maybe that's weird yeah. to say because that's a symptom of several illnesses. But okay, <laughs> I, I just have to say anyone who reads this book is going to have goosebumps at some point. And it's not just because obviously, you know, the COVID pandemic is still raging on and the CDC just, you know, yesterday at the time of our recording is abandoning us even more right. to mass illness and death in its latest guidelines. Or we're not even just because the state has no interest apparently in distributing monkeypox vaccines on the scale needed to prevent exponential viral replication. I think part of part of what gives goosebumps is that American viral history, as you put it, actually stretches back centuries. Mm-hmm. And so I guess what place I wanted to start was by asking, you know, as you sit in this moment that we're all living through right now, like for you, what is the context or container that you want to put this this historical moment we're living through into for perspective, right? Like shit didn't just get bad in 2020, did it? No. Um, I think one of the the contexts I want to put it in is uh, riffing on something you said that you had chills and and you sort of laughed about how this is also something that's a symptom. And I think that viruses are very embodied experiences and we think of them appropriately um, at times as being extremely sad and painful and, and leading to death. But they also are connecting us and giving us this real opportunity to 
not flee or not try to flee from the reality of our situation in ways that we're in, intended to. Um, they're also, they are attached to things that give us pleasure. They're attached to ways that, you know, we're connected. I've been thinking particularly since my launch event where a number of people from the group ACT UP came, you know, how much culture and community and love and connection come through the process of negotiating these. Um, they also lead to things that are very funny. And so that's sort of one context that I, that I want to dwell on is the way that the viruses make us just be present and really connect us to one another. And an enormous, um, educational experience for me was learning about ACT UP and AIDS activism in a variety of ways as a reporter, but a lot through the work and, and mentorship and tutorship of Sarah Schulman. And I think I say this in my book that I, I remember learning from her, you can't really understand contemporary American history without understanding AIDS history, mm -hmm. which is something, mm -hmm. even though I was the, I was the son of a high school history teacher who really through his own efforts taught himself what African-American history was and taught it in schools in a time before there was any national curriculum or attempt to do that or backlash against it, mm -hmm. you know, as we're seeing now, um, you know, even under my father who, who went out of what he was taught as a history teacher, I still knew nothing about AIDS history until really until I became a journalist and eventually started a PhD program myself. So I want people to understand the context that hmm. a lot of what we see is scary, uh, but people have been working on how to negotiate it for a mm -hmm. long time. I think because of the coronavirus pandemic, people have more sense of uh, maybe the 1918 flu pandemic. Um, certainly with monkeypox, I think people are keying in a little bit to what the U.S. government said they were doing around potential small box threats after 9-11, but has completely been shown to be utter bullshit and the ways that they told us that there could be a smallpox, you know, smallpox warfare and we have enough vaccines to vaccinate all 300 million people. Mm. Now, you know, we've gotten them out to a couple hundred thousand in this country of um of 330 million you know, with something that's affecting rel a relatively small percent of the population right now. So I think people are starting to reach out for this a bit. Um, but something I, I often will tell my students or people who don't know anything about AIDS history is that like your dentist didn't wear gloves before HIV. Like you would go to the doctor, mm -hmm. there were no gloves. Wow. <laughs> when I was a kid in you know, the early 1980s, like your dentist would just be in your mouth with, um, yeah, no. with raw fingers. Um, and so like, of course, oh. there are all these like, there are all these great things that happen beyond HIV mitigation from that, of which I hoped that we would maybe think about masks that way, that we started using masks for COVID, but maybe people will just grow socialized into using masks whenever they have a sore throat for anything, um, or know that they're around someone who's immunocompromised or whether they think they have the flu uh, or during flu season. And you know, as you uh, pointed to, this has gone on since before the, the birth of the country, that viruses have been intentionally and unintentionally giving health, uh, giving different health outcomes to different people, most disastrously with the helping to the genocide of Native Americans as certain pathogens were introduced to this continent in the 8th, 17th and 18th centuries. Um, but we've been negotiating this for a long time. We're always going to have to negotiate this. And I think the real benefit in this moment, the context we can have is that people before us and people among us have been understanding how to negotiate this. And, and we can learn from that in ways to be more interdependent and not 
feel like we have to all be independent. The, the crisis of that, as you pointed to with the CDC directive even coming out this week, is that we're constantly told this is something you have to manage by yourself. All 330 million of you should see your doctor and figure out what's best for you. And that's, of course, the antithesis to having a sense of public health or to negotiating the really intimate ways. I also thought of that when you're talking about having goosebumps, like the viruses are a very intimate experience. And so I think I hope this book helps people dwell on that and be able to reflect on the intimacy that might reflect loss they've had, that they've been encouraged to move past, or also to just kind of reflect on how we have to stay in and be attuned to that intimacy to negotiate how we still are able to find each other in these very challenging times. Stephen, I think it would be helpful to maybe just for our listeners to back up a little bit and sort of define viral underclass. Um, you know, it's in the book, it's not just a sort of shifting group of human beings, but you actually encourage us to think about it as a, a theory or like a sort of a lens for like understanding the world. So I'd love to hear you just yeah define it and then maybe talk a little bit about how this idea developed for you from like a term into a whole a whole theory. Sure, thank you. Um, so the term itself was originally coined by an activist named Sean Strube, who I have um, interviewed for stories and was involved in the case where I really started to think about this of Michael Johnson, this young man who was accused of transmitting HIV or exposing HIV to six other men, and was eventually uh, sentenced to 30 years in prison. And that was eventually overturned, but spent many years in prison. And the way that Sean used it was to think about how people living with HIV were being put under a particular class mm-hmm. of the law. And often in the United States, it does happen. But for the most part in the U.S., we don't actually spell out immutable characteristics applied to law. When Black people are you know, unduly subjected to certain laws, um, and, the, and it, it's not usually spelled out, it's because you are Black. It's, it's usually mm-hmm. other things happen. With HIV, it's very explicitly done that way. And Sean's theory, or the way Sean was using it originally, was um, also talking about how children will be born with HIV, and then they're under the separate set of laws for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And so it's this really clear um, thing that happens. And I, I heard activists using it a little differently when I was doing my reporting, when I first encountered it, that they were talking about how if HIV laws were to be repealed, some activists, the more radical activists, were calling for them to be abolished entirely, and some were asking people to, to have them just kind of dialed back and make it so that if you were what's called virally suppressed, if you're taking HIV medication and and cannot transmit it to others, then you shouldn't be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. But that was creating this viral divide that they were talking about. And they said that's creating kind of a sub-viral underclass. And I really thought to sort of use it as a theory when I was trying to figure out what kind of book I was going to write. The Michael Johnson case had been the basis of my dissertation. I was starting to finish graduate school and was planning to write a book when COVID happened. Mm -hmm. And um, talking to my agent and eventually my book editor, I really wanted to use this as sort of a theoretical lens to see how social drivers create really similar circumstances for people I I refer to as a viral underclass. And those are people who are the most likely to be in the pathway of viruses, the most likely to feel the worst effects of them, including death. Mm. Um, and, And I think this really developed for a theory for me with COVID and HIV, even though I can now see it with monkeypox and many other things, but the SARS-CoV-2 virus and, and the human immunodeficiency virus are extremely different viruses. Mm-hmm. And I actually first wrote this out in an essay for Slate um, mm-hmm. in 2020, around the time where I was, I was finalizing getting ready to, to start writing this book. 
Um, you know, they behave differently. They're on different time scales. They transmit differently. You know, HIV is extremely slow acting. It, it takes, it can take seven to 15 years to kill somebody, whereas COVID can enter someone and kill them in a couple of weeks or cycle out of them, which HIV doesn't do. But I started seeing these really similar maps coming up where people were affected. Mm. And some of it took a framework shift in my mind a bit. HIV in its early years was affecting much younger men, as we're also seeing the average age, I think, in the U.S. for monkeypox is like 38. So it ties into a certain level of um, uh, sexual interaction in life, but also older people have sex too. But with with COVID, it was hitting much older people, but there's the first round of deaths in this country were happening in the same places. Mm-hmm. And the reason they were, and to some degree this still happens, is that the nursing homes where people were affected were the poorest nursing homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and also so many people who were affected by both of these fires had been incarcerated, were Black, were queer. And, mm-hmm. and so I think a, a theory of a viral underclass helps a little bit to distinguish at times we can see like why a queer person or gay man might be affected through sexual practice or why a trans person might be affected by hepatitis or HIV because they're not able to get access to good health care. And so they're seeking hormones on the contraband market. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of makes sense at a, at a technical level. But LGBT people were also uh, disproportionately affected by COVID. And that had nothing to do sort of with sexual practice or gender identity. That had to do because we are more likely to be poor. Right more likely to be incarcerated, unemployed, not having health insurance. And so these social vectors keep putting the same kinds of people, sometimes in geographically concentrated places, in in the pathway of viruses. And then the social determinants of their health determine who's most likely to to live or die. And so I I wanted to use this as a a theory um, for for a way for me to write through the COVID pandemic because I didn't know exactly what I was gonna write about it when when I knew this would dovetail with my book. I used that as kind of a theoretical lens to help guide me to know what to look at and how to think about things. Mm. And and I didn't know, you know, for, I knew I would write about Lorraine at the beginning of the book because she was the first person in my outer social circle who died, but I did not know that my own, uh, you know, beloved editor, Ward Harkavy was going to die and that I would be writing about him. Um, And so like all theories, I think it has its uses and its limitations, but it's been really helpful for me and I hope it's helpful for readers to kind of understand what's happening around us. And there are particularities to the different viruses and it's important to pay attention to those, but the social drivers mm-hmm. really play an enormous role, I think an even bigger role in, in why so much harm is caused around them. And I think that if we ha- use this as also a way just to have a useful class analysis, which is so often not talked about in the United States, that that can help us understand what are the structural reasons and the economic reasons that these things happen again and again and again. I guess one of the things I feel like I kept, um, felt like I was chewing on it, you know, as I was reading the book was like, what we know or how we know what we know, right, as individuals or as communities or as a country or as a globe, right? It's like, we know, that, you know, viruses propagate in certain ways, and we know how harm is, you know, unevenly distributed. But then we produce these sort of lies or these delusions, right, to kind of ward off those uncomfortable truths, often under coercion, the coercion might be called capitalism, or it might be called white supremacy, you know, um, or the police, right. But you know, one thing you say, um, early on in the book, you know, talking about how we have fantasized that people 
are the viral vectors, mm-hmm. as if they cause right viral outbreaks or replication. And specifically, you know, I think you you really help us understand these sorts of anti-black libels that go mm-hmm. into construing you know black people as a population and black individuals as disease vectors. But you write quote. People should never be considered vectors. Vectors are situations, buildings, conditions, isms. I started that conversation actually with a friend of mine named Stephen Moldrum, who's a a public health researcher. And we were talking early in the pandemic about there's sometimes these words that are used. Sometimes they are dangerous in the context of scientists, but also scientists are using them with each other in ways that get uh, interpreted very differently. So you know, in a lab, you might like be talking about a host in a way. And actually the researcher might be doing it, might actually be a queer person and and understands that you would not use this like in a bar. But then suddenly, you know, as Stephen said, like this is, that was the first uh, pandemic, viral pandemic that we experienced via viral media. You know, there wasn't, Mm -hmm. there certainly wasn't Mm -hmm. viral social media at the beginning of HIV and AIDS. ACT UP knew how to use media. That was a big part of it, but it's a very different thing when you're dealing with a handful of Mm -hmm. outlets versus anyone being able to talk about any time. And so we were concerned seeing like, oh, this, this language is actually circulating quite quickly as people were trying to understand the pandemic understandably and suddenly you know peer review papers preprints you know a screen grabs of preprints uh, you know are yes, all sort of right, circulating totally. um and mm-hmm. so we realized like yeah you know we shouldn't be talking about vectors we shouldn't be talking about people's vectors we shouldn't be talking about hosts um and because that is really reductive of of who human beings are but the dynamics I, i've seen this for a while particularly in the michael johnson case where all the anxiety gets sort of put on one person. He's, I I think, Mm -hmm. a a, a prime example of how this happens, that he was this one person with HIV. There were stories about him in Australia, all over the world, as as if he is the danger to HIV when there are 35 to 40 million people living with this virus. And so the idea of thinking that this one person is the vector is um, unhelpful and and not true, but it's extremely disastrous as I, as I write about chapter two, particularly with, with one friend and former lover of mine, that there's just way too much pressure that's put on people. And so they end up bearing an enormous responsibility that should not be on their shoulders alone. And in the Michael Johnson case, I did also think, and I'm, there's something similar, I'll, I'll see if I can connect these with monkeypox, but there are ways that identity hmm. rather than actions get sort of fused together. And so even though interracial, um, for now, we don't know what the Supreme Court will rule next year, um, but for now, you know, interracial relations <laughs> yeah. are not illegal. That's something I thought about a lot because my dad was black and my mother was white and it was illegal when they first got married. Um, and so, I, you know, I think a lot about miscegenation. So technically right now, that's not illegal, but criminalizing certain things like HIV, which is overwhelmingly applied to black men, is a way of criminalizing interracial sex. And I think that as we saw HIV be something that was felt by and, and, and uh, de- deadly for all gay men, but it was even before there were drugs, it was disproportionately felt by black men. But then in 96, these drugs came along and a lot of white gay men got the drugs and they lived and the virus cycled out of their communities. But a lot of black people, as I write about in the book, did not get the drugs. And for a bunch of other reasons, HIV concentrated and increased in black America. And so in a way, I think that HIV stands in for, that's what my dissertation was called, infectious blackness. 
um, is that HIV becomes imagined as something that if you're if you're infected by it, you're seen as a kind of black or association with blackness, an association with you know quote unquote mm-hmm. dirtiness and queerness. And so that's why I think we shouldn't think of people as vectors for that. We should realize the vectors are the isms, and those isms can be undone. The people who are infected and, and experiencing this are themselves worthy of compassion and care and not to be seen as villains. And there's something I think in some ways even trickier now with monkeypox is the data is coming in. I have a piece about this coming out mm. next week um, that we're not only seeing around the world that it's very much happening between men who have sex with men. And I think, again, this is important to mm-hmm. talk about sex between men as an action. I think we really conflate yeah. it as an identity in this mm-hmm. country, but it, like it's an action that should be spoken about and we should figure out how to mitigate it. Um, but And it's also really concentrating in the United States among Black and Latin men. And I think we're already, yeah. there's, there's not enough data to say this entirely yet, but certainly it's pointing in that direction that if you look at the little bit of data that came out um, four to six weeks ago, and now it's even more racially skewed. Is I think what's happening is, and this data is in, that white gay men are getting the monkeypox vaccine. And so it's starting to decrease a little bit. And then the people who are, you know, the black people who are just already more pooled amongst are not getting it. So it's increasing. So the racial disparity is growing. Um, and those are like isms that can be dealt with and need to be proactively dealt with. But that has nothing to do with, sort of the lack of character of people who are becoming infected. In Chicago, I got one shot largely by luck. You know, I just happened to see that that something was happening and I went and got one. But I'm reading these endless stories of people waiting in line four hours, six hours, 10 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if I was in that situation, I would just keep working from my phone or I would arrange to work later if I needed to. But of course, shift workers, shift workers can't do that. Um, and they can't afford to, it's like a poll tax to be able to, to get. Um, so that's, that's kind of the way I am hoping the, that I wrote about vectors and how to think about them is it's not, it's not anyone's individual failure that this virus is moving through their body through doing completely normal human activities. I wanted to ask you about the question of morality and blame, because I know we saw this a lot with COVID. We're seeing it again with monkeypox, that people are being blamed for contracting the virus and blamed for spreading it. During COVID, you know, I I found it, I found myself sort of pulled between two impulses. One is to say, you know, this isn't any one person's responsibility to stop the spread of a virus. Obviously, we have a social uh, responsibility to enact public health uh, actions that will help stop it. On the other hand, like we each do have some sort of responsibility to stop the spread in as much as we can. How do you find a balance? And, and in your research, how have you seen people grapple with that balance between responsibility and you know, sort of lack thereof when it comes to viruses? COVID certainly was um, stigmatized and and still is stigmatized. I do think that there's an added level of discourse around sex when you think about HIV or hepatitis, Mm -hmm. drug use, and and monkeypox. You know, there's sort of these extra levels, but it still exists very much with COVID. And and it keeps getting framed as an individual failure. And of course, we, we breathe much more casually than almost anything else we do. And so, and so COVID, like we, we can't not breathe and we can't not breathe around hum, other human beings. It's, it's by definition a social experience and kind of a joke I've, I've thought of in my mind is 
like storks don't deliver babies into people, but often this framing acts like storks are delivering viruses into humans as if they didn't, as if someone else didn't infect them before they infected someone else. Like the definition of it is a human exchange. Um, And yet we'll often try to say it's one person. So you're totally correct. There are things that we can do to mitigate transmission and often stigmatized groups are the ones trying to do this the most. As we can see from AIDS history, gay men didn't really, they didn't use condoms before AIDS because condoms were something that were used primarily for birth control and other STIs um, could be dealt with in other ways. And then gay men started using condoms and and a lot of education happened around that um, to to get each other to use condoms. And it didn't take a legal mandate to do so. And we're seeing similar conversations and there's friction in it, but that's understandable and conflict. Um, But we're seeing similar things happening around that with monkeypox that some sex parties Mm -hmm. and um, events have canceled themselves or they've turned to um, lobbying and organizing vaccine drives, trying to get the vaccines. I I very firmly believe if the U.S. government had 10 million vaccines to give out, gay men would like give them out in a month, you know, like the the infrastructure and the will and the history to do it would happen pretty quickly. And so like there are things you can do, but then we're, we're constantly thwarted and some of it happens through selfishness, but until the last few months, and there's been polling on this pretty consistently over the past two, two and a half years, until the past couple of months, the American public, a majority supported mask mandates. And it's really only been until people like David Leonard and Lana Wen and, and then also the Democrats really started coming Mm. out against them and saying, we have Mm. to get back to business as usual. But I think a lot of people would not mind doing things that allowed life to happen more usually. My, my launch event was happy to have it at Strand and they had a vaccine and next requirement. And a lot of states, the localities let businesses and institutions still have them. They, they'll, they'll say like, yeah. there's nothing we yeah. can do because the state's not yeah. mandating it. But it's like a lot of places are allowed to still have them. Boys Town in Chicago, almost all the bars that I know of actually still require vaccination, which they're allowed to. Huh. Um, and that's you know something that, they're trying to do. So it's, and it's not something we can do alone. So I think that, yes, we have to do what we can. And I think marginalized communities, particularly disabled people and people who do work around ableism and disability have a history of trying to do these kinds of things. They're much easier to do when you have an institutional mandate. And I'm finding as I try to negotiate like my book events, um, how I want to try to, you know, instill this myself. Like it's it's quite easy when the, the institution requires it. And it's a lot of work to negotiate yeah. it when they don't. And I imagine like many people yeah. sort of in a self-selection way, many people who would want to hear me talk are probably going to wear, you know, a max and probably got vaccinated anyway. But it does take a lot of work. And I think another way to, to sort of understand the individual versus collective approach to this is that um, only about 30% of the country now is is like properly vaccinated. And by properly vaccinated, I mean that they've been boosted, that they aren't too far away from a shot. Well, you know, and, and yeah, about 70% of the country is vaccinated. So that 40% of the country did not become anti-vaxxers or disinterested in their own health or the health of others. It's that the infrastructure disappeared. And if we still had, you know, a system up and running where you know, millions of people could get vaccinated every day. You know, I think a lot of people would be like, okay, I've gotten a notice that in September I'm due for a new booster and I just go down to the Javits Center and get it. And oh, maybe they'll offer me a flu shot at the same time. 
I think when you have that, that's the basis of harm reduction. When you give people two choices to make, they generally choose the healthier choice. When you give them no choice or one choice, then that's the one they go with. And effectively for a lot of people, they, they, they don't, they can't get vaccinated. They can't get boosted. They don't know they can get boosted. And certainly there's no infrastructure like there was in this time in, you know, early 2021. So I, I think that the two things have to go together, but the ways that we can protect one another are much more easily facilitated when we are given a collective framework and ability and sometimes even a mandate to do so. I, I, I want to give you some time to talk to us about kind of the incredible place that the book takes us to towards the end. And But, but along the way, I just wanted to say that I'm not sure I've ever read such an erudite book that also weaves the stories mm-hmm. of lovers, romances so yeah. thoughtfully and tenderly throughout. Like it just, I don't know, it's really made a huge impression on me. It's also just like a gloriously gay move. <laughs> uh, and and many of the relationships that you narrate, which include friendships and mentoring relationships and relationships with sources as a journalist, just involve a lot of loss. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, in this, in this tradition, um, of, of AIDS writing and of other kinds of writing, you, you know, the way you talk about funerals or, or losing people close to you or, or never quite getting closure in the way that people in the viral underclass don't get closure is especially powerful because you don't only do it sort of in a sentimental way, by by which I mean, you're not, at least as I felt it, you're not sort of trying to convince us that we should care because this feels so bad to read, right? Um, instead, I, it seemed like you wanted us to really, you know, walk into loss with you, um, you know, mm. and, and, and to do that because it will teach us something really profound, I think, about building an interdependent world that actually could abolish the viral underclass uh, and, and could, you know, create a different sort of world that, that, that we might be living in. And so, you know, partly, you know, if there's anything you want to say about how it felt to write like that, because I just, it's one of the most beautiful kind of pieces of craft I've encountered in a long time. But also then like about where that gets us, because, you know, I I got to the end of the book yesterday and I was like, okay, I have a lot of feelings, but like, but I felt galvanized. Right. Mm. And, and that's actually really hard to do right now. Like not very, you know, I'm pretty baked in, in my opinions and beliefs that, you know, I obsessively read and consume information, but like, you know, um, and I was like, you know, starting your book feeling like, well, I'm definitely on the same page, but I got to the end and I was like, "Mm," like, I don't know, I felt primed. Mm. Um, And so I just kind of wanted to invite you to, to take us there. However you would, however, you know, you would like to do. Thanks so much for that question. Uh, this book is is a lot of ways about loss, and I and I I didn't intend for it to be as personal. I knew that I would situate myself in it, but I didn't understand how personal it would be. In part because of I didn't know how I would experience loss uh, in COVID. And my next book project will probably be much more about this. I. I nod to it a little bit in this book, um, but I've experienced a lot of loss. And you know, my my mother, my father, and my stepmother all died in three and a half years. In my twenties, my sister Sharon died in my thirties, and so I've loss has been a huge part of my experience. And I and I think and I hope in some ways that that gives me some vulnerability and humility to be able to step into the experiences of some of the people that I'm writing about. And, you know, and I experienced loss in COVID as well, but I have interviewed and talked to people just with much more massive loss. And I think that sort of a, a, a 
dynamic that's connected. I think in the United States, we're just always encouraged to rush past everything, particularly grief, and not to sit with it. My late sister, Sharon, who died of cancer in 2014, had been a therapist herself and, and treated people with grief often. And she had this metaphor that has stayed with me mm-hmm. often that um, people will look at grief and they will see a lake and it looks very scary and they don't want to get in it. <laughs> and, and, and understandably, it looks very frightening. And so they try to walk around it. Um, and But they realize like it's not really a lake, it's, it's a river and they keep thinking they're going to get around it, they can't get around it and suddenly they're in the woods and it's getting dark and scary anyway and they're still not around it. And so either they continue that and get more and more lost from where they're trying to go or eventually they get in the water and swim and the water is icky mm. and scary um, and you do feel like you, you're going to drown maybe at some point, but it's the only way to sort of move through it is just to be in it. And so I have tried to, in my own thinking and experience of grief and therapy and my writing, just stay in, present in that. And I'm hoping that my ability mm. to do that helps readers be able to do so as well with their own experiences of grief. Very connected, there's a, a, a queer trans journalist named Lewis Raven Wallace, who um, whose work I adore and had an experience that was very very impactful on me. Um, Lewis lost their job at Marketplace, the, the radio show, the first week of the Trump administration for identifying that there were really racist right elements and that journalism should take a stand against it and questioning the notion of objectivity. And they were summarily fired from their job. And so part of what I wanted to do in the book as well is, is I'm glad you said it was a very gay move. <laughs> um, you know, part of what I wanted to do was like acknowledge that I am a person in this book and it's okay for us to acknowledge that in journalism, in science, in scientific yeah. research, yes. you know, like parts of things I'm referencing, some of it's, you know, peer reviewed scientific research I've done or others have done um, that we can bring our whole selves to this. And it makes our, I think it makes our work more rigorous. And sometimes I am being very polemic, sometimes not. But I think that readers have a right to know that I have relationships with people. And I'm both thinking the relationships I have with people, you know, they inform who I am, they make who I am. Sometimes it's at a personal level. Sometimes they're, you know, they're very world-renowned experts and that's why I'm talking to them. But I also like to acknowledge that I know them because, yeah, you know, I have this brilliant colleague at Northwestern and they're my friend. And But, you know, if I was at, the University of Southern California, I would be talking to someone else. And I think that cis, straight, white, you know, quote unquote, objective journalists, they all have relationships with these people, right? Like the, the anonymous sources <laughs> in, you know, hit pieces yeah. or DC stories, like they, you know, they have relations. They're just not saying, they're not saying it. Um, and so the reader doesn't have the opportunity to know that or to evaluate it. So yeah, I was, I, I wanted to be honest about my own experience with loss you know, it's a little uncomfortable for me to, um, but not in a bad way, <laughs> but, you know, it's a little uncomfortable for me to be so vulnerable, but I felt like if I'm vulnerable, that will allow readers to have some vulnerability and space for reflection on both right. the loss they've experienced, but I'm hopeful also to have some, say some reflection that, yeah, we're getting screwed by the government, but there's, there is space to think about what we can do moving forward. And so I hope that that um, came through. Listeners, I, I'm sure I speak for all of you when I say we could listen and learn with you like truly all day, Stephen. It's, inc- it's incredible. But thankfully for listeners, 
the book is out. So folks <laughs> can go uh, and get the full story in, in the glory of every single chapter. The, the viral underclass is available wherever you want to get your book. So I'm going to say drop whatever you're doing and go get it right now, okay? Uh, you'll be so glad you did. And Stephen, I'm so glad that you came on the show. Thank you for sharing all of this wisdom and wit with us. And congratulations on just such an incredible, incredible uh, achievement. I cannot thank you enough um, that, yeah, to, to have the kind words from the three of you all means a, a great deal to me. So thank you very much. And thank you for the work that you have done on the show and the ways that you help people to, um, to have their own queer experiences and queer lens on the world. Okay, we've reached the end of the show. Uh, but before we go, we will have, as always, our updates to the gay agenda. Um, Jules, why don't you start us out? Sure, sure. Well, I know we already talked about one amazing book, but if you want to have some genre range this month <laughs> and put, put a little fiction in the rotation, may I suggest to you absolutely fabulous novel that has just come out. It's called X, uh, and it's by Davy Davis. Mm. Uh, you know, full disclosure, I'm making this uh, you know, recommendation on the agenda for myself, too, because I need to sit down and read it before the summer is over. But, you know, uh, Davy is someone who's, you know, online writing and, and, and creative work, I really, really, really admire. And this is, you know, a very exciting kind of dystopian political thriller sort of book um, set in a very relatable, <laughs> um, but dystopian version um, of the United States. Well, actually, New York City, where the world is ending, and there is um, a sadist who's sort of down on their luck, uh, who is wandering around Ooh. Brooklyn, listening to true crime podcasts, uh, and gets dragged into a warehouse party by their best friend, where <laughs> some, you know, things begin to happen that lead in very fascinating and thrilling uh, directions. I don't want to give anything away, but this is a much, much, much awaited book, very beloved. So if you're looking for kind of queer, um, trans sensibility, uh, dystopian thriller, Get out there uh, and and read X, which is um, out from Catapult Books now, and and just follow um, yeah Davy Davis and all the work that they do. Their Substack is impeccable. Mm -hmm. The Twitter presence is fantastic. You're not you're not gonna be you're not gonna be mad about mm. it. <laughs> Brian, how about you? Sure, um, I have a recommendation this month for The Sandman, which is on Netflix. You've probably heard about this show because uh, it's kind of a big, big production yeah. and big deal. Yeah. Um, I actually, so it's Neil Gaiman's uh, classic comic series. It's been adapted into a really, a very beautiful, um, I think, ten episode show on Netflix, um, and it's getting getting really good reviews uh, all around. And I, I certainly echo those. It's just like an excellent. Uh, fantasy show. If you don't know the story, just very briefly, it's about uh, the Sandman, the Lord of Dreams, uh, is captured by a sort of evil magician uh, around the turn of the century and then is imprisoned. And uh, once he gets out of prison, the rest of the story is about sort of what, what goes on. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's really great. I had not read this before. I had read American Gods and so knew that Gaiman, Gaiman had 
handles queer storylines and in nice ways and, and sort of has nods to queer culture in that book. With um, a last name like gay man. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, Christina. <laughs> And I think he was described recently to me as something he's like the only British writer who's like not a turf now <laughs> or something. For real. We stand. Yeah, so we like that. Um, but I didn't know this story really. Um, and I was really delighted to find it in the, the, the first five or six episodes that I've seen. Like every character is queer. Um, like yeah. all, like wow. all of all of the, the sort of episodic stories involve queer people and or we're talking about supernatural beings who are just sort of aesthetically queer, if that <laughs> makes sense. We meet Satan yes. in one episode, and and they are like extremely queer, um, as as they an, an angel. <laughs> yeah, every villain has to be. Yeah, well, just you know, an angel fallen. It, it all makes yeah. sense. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I was just I, this was a nice surprise. I would have watched the show anyway, but it it's been really delightful. Just like every episode, there's like family in it, um, in one way or another. So um, if you if you hadn't checked it out yet, uh, definitely go check out The Sandman. Uh, it's on Netflix. Christina. Well, after you consume those two bits of media that make you feel good, here's one that'll <laughs> make you feel bad. <laughs> I'm going to recommend an article in the Texas Tribune by Eric Nugborin. Um, It's Ah. called We Failed, Gay Republicans Who Fought for Acceptance in Texas GOP See Little Progress. I really had to just wrap things up with another Republican (laughs) moment. The piece is basically a story of the log cabin Republicans in Texas, the history of what they did in the 80s and 90s to try to gain access to the Texas Republican Party. They sued to get to put a booth in the Republican Party's convention in Texas, which the state Supreme Court denied them the ability to do. The person who wrote that opinion was Greg Abbott. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of... really vivid stories about what gay Republicans went through and continue to go through in the party. You might be even tempted to feel sympathy for them. But the question that it raised for me is, what makes a person so desperate to be part of this club that so detests them and is so intent on denying them equal citizenship and respect? I mean, this is a party whose platform in 2022, re-entered a line about homosexuality being an abnormal lifestyle choice Mm -hmm. after that language was only taken out four years ago at the behest of a gay Republican. The Log Cabin Republicans of Texas also endorsed the Texas bill banning trans youth from playing sports. So those are the people that we're dealing with here. So what's interesting about this piece is that sort of the main people telling this story are people who left the Republican Party, or at least left the log cabin Republicans because the party was so resistant to change. And they present this dichotomy between how a log cabin Republican group might be trying to make the Republican Party less homophobic and transphobic, or a log cabin Republican Party existing primarily to convince LGBTQ people Mm. to support the Republican Party. So what they're saying is that it used to be the former, now it's the latter, they can't support Hmm. it anymore. Hmm. But what it really says to me is that money, power, masculinity, bigotry, fear, self-hatred, it's all this sort of heady brew that can um, very easily make a person, um, especially a white gay man, throw their lot in with the devil, um, which I believe these people are the embodiment of, and not the fun queer Not the fun one, no. (laughs) Uh So read the piece. Just another little, some food for thought if you do. 
it made me think about whether it's valuable to have someone on the inside and whether these gay Republicans were actually doing something worthwhile by trying to get Republican leaders in Texas to be less terrible, because we do want them to be less terrible. But I haven't decided whether mm. whether that's valuable or not. So, yeah, it raised a lot of questions for me, and it's a really great piece. Again, it's called We Failed Gay Republicans Who Fought for Acceptance in Texas GOP See Little Progress <laughs> in the Texas Tribune. Say that three times. <laughs> well, that's it for our show this month. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your topic ideas, your advice questions, your experience at the party that accidentally turned into an orgy. You can reach us at outwardpodcast at slate.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. June Thomas is our producer and the overalls that make our emu farming possible. (laughs) If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app or better yet, tell all your people about it. Give us a rating and review the show so other people can find it. We'll be back on your feeds next month for Back to School, September 21st. Bye, Jules and Brian. Bye, Christina. Bye, everybody. Stay gay. Stay gay.